How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, focus on the word under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to fellowship with you, to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study tonight, that we would be receptive to that under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. We continue to pray for our nation, for our president, for our military and political leaders, that you would give them uh, guidance and direction. We continue to pray for our national security, that you would watch over us and protect us from any more assaults such as we had on 9-11. Father, ultimately we know that as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and that the impact of, of so many believers in this nation that are positive to your word has a, has a significant impact. The prayers continually go up for this nation. We have missionaries that are continuously supported, and we continue to pray for the missionaries from this church and many, many others who are operating and in some cases operating behind enemy lines, operating in extremely sensitive areas in the Middle East and in Central Asia, uh, taking the word of God to uh, indigenous people and in many cases people who are hostile to their work. We pray that you would uh, continue to provide for their needs to watch over them as they carry out their work of Bible translation and evangelism. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and we move into the next section in Genesis, the next section that deals with the expansion of unbelief. And we begin to see how the evil or sin that... um, comes into the human race in Genesis 3, now begins to expand. Genesis 4 shows the expansion of that sin and evil into the uh, the third divine institution, that is family. We saw its impact on the individuals in the structure of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, the outline of the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3, verses uh, 14 to 19. And now when we get into chapter 4, the focus is on its outworking in the family, divine institution number number 3. Now at the end of the previous section, we saw that man had disobeyed God and fell into sin because Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He plunged the entire human race for which he stood as a representative into sin, so that the entire race now is totally depraved. That is, they are not as evil or as wicked as they can be, but that is the orientation of the fallen human being because of the sin nature. They are oriented towards sin. They are born in a state of total depravity and spiritual death, and that is what we see in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, in this section, Genesis 4, 1 through 26, we see the consequences of sin and the outworking of evil in the human race and on the planet. Again, we will see that just as with Adam's sin, there was a consequence on nature, there is a consequence on nature for Cain's murder of Abel. And one point that I haven't spent much time on so far, I've just hit it here and there, and that is a point that 
man's sin doesn't operate simply in isolation, but it has a tremendous impact on nature, on creation, on all the aspects uh, of nature. So we see that just as sin affects nature, we will also see, and I'll develop this doctrine much more when we get to the area of the flood, and that is that sin brings judgment on nature, brings divine judgment on nature. And we see a a horrendous example of that when God brings this worldwide flood and all of nature is changed and there's a global upheaval and a global catastrophe. And you see it again at times in the outline of the curse on uh, Israel, that if they're disobedient, there's going to be famines in the land, a lack of productivity, drought, that man's spiritual condition has an effect far beyond his own personal situation. And, of course, the most extreme example of that is when you get into the book of Revelation and you start looking at what happens during the seven years of the tribulation and all of the calamities and catastrophes that take place not only on the earth but also in the heavens as a result of God's judgment. So sin doesn't simply affect the human race and the human race alone, but it reverberates throughout all of nature and all of the universe. Now in this chapter, in chapter 4, what we're going to see as a result of the events of chapter 3 is the outworking and development of sin in the human race. So there is a contrast here between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. Uh, the focus is on two individuals, primarily Cain and Abel. And so there is a contrast between the human viewpoint, sin-based arrogance of Cain, uh, versus the divine viewpoint, uh, positive volition, of Abel, and there's a lot to learn as we look at that. So we see in this sense, in this chapter, a development of the result of human autonomy. Remember, the basic orientation of the sin nature is arrogance, independence from God. And this is displayed as it works itself out generationally through Cain and his murder of Abel and then through the descendants of Cain in chapter 4. And so this is the beginning of what the New Testament calls the cosmic system. It's the beginning of what the New Testament calls the cosmic system. And this is something that Israel would be very sensitive to, very conscious of, as they were getting ready to move into Canaan. Remember the setting of Genesis, or the, the setting at the time of the writing of Genesis. You have Israel on the plains of Moab, on the verge of going into the promised land, and Moses writes the Pentateuch in order to demonstrate for the, for the nation why they have been called out by God, why they have been given this land, and what the basis for blessing and cursing will be once they are inside the land. Now, in the New Testament, we get into this whole category of cosmic thinking, the world, the cosmos, which is the terminology the New Testament uses, and it looks like this in the Greek, K-O-S, M-O-S. And the cosmic system really has to do with human viewpoint culture. And that's how we should think of it, is the, the culture that arrogant man in rebellion against God develops in order to try to make life work. We've seen this under the phrase in Romans 1.18, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And this is exactly what happens as man wants to live independent from God. He begins to structure in his thought his own universe, his own ideas of what works, what doesn't work. He wants to define reality apart from God. He wants, he's in rebellious, rebellion against God. He has rejected what God has the, has revealed, and he is structuring reality according to his own finite standard. This is exactly what happened in the fall when the serpent tempted the woman, and the serpent, te- and then she offered the fruit to Adam. The structure there, in terms of their thought, is in terms of the t- original temptation to the woman. Has God said? 
Will you really die? In other words, it's a questioning of God's wisdom. And has God actually portrayed reality? And it put the woman in a position where she fell into the trap and she tries to judge whether or not God was right or wrong or fully honest with her. And so she begins to want to structure uh, reality on her own. She wants to validate or evaluate God's uh, mandate on the basis of her own opinion. And she sets herself up as the ultimate norm and standard for truth. And so this begins to reveal the essence of cosmic thinking. Now, Israel is on the verge of going into the Canaanite culture. And this is a culture that's dominated by cities. Remember, that was one of the problems in, in uh, number 16 that the, uh, giant, that they, the original ten spies that were neg- on negative volition did not want to go into the land because there were giants in the land and they, uh, they lived where? In walled cities. So you have Israel moving into a new culture that's dominated by walled cities, uh, a culture that has developed its own music, art, and industry, but it's a culture that is built on antagonism and, I mean, arrogance and antagonism toward God. And so in, in this chapter in Genesis 4, we see the main themes that, that are developed later on in Israel's history, and that is would, would Israel maintain a steadfast position in relationship to the revelation of God, maintain her obedience to the law revealed at Sinai, uh, continue to have a righteous sacrificial system based upon the uh, revealed ritual at Sinai, and obedience to God. When we think about the cosmic system, there's two elements that predominate. Everything else can come under these two categories. The first is arrogance. Man is arrogant. He is self-absorbed. He is uh, he, he is um, on a path of self-deification. He goes from uh, self-absorption to self-indulgence, self-indulgence to self-justification, self-justification to self-deception, self-deception to self-deification. He is in arrogance. Second, he, that arrogance puts him in antagonism to God. He is hostile to God, his word, his plan, and his procedures. So man is setting up his own way of doing things. He wants to be the ultimate standard for all absolutes. Rather than uh, bowing the knee to God, he wants to establish his own standards, his own uh, absolutes, and he wants God then to... Uh, conform himself to man's standards and man's ideas. Now, what we see in this chapter is that how the curse of sin and spiritual death is passed on physically to the descendants. Uh, in this chapter, we focus on two of the offspring of Adam and Eve. We don't know if they're the first two. Cain, obviously, is the first. There were probably several others between Cain and Abel. There's no indication. There's, In fact, there's a lot that is left out here in this chapter. We don't know how long it took between the time that they were kicked out of the garden until Cain was born. We don't know how much time elapsed between the birth of Cain and the birth of Abel. We do not know how much time elapsed between their birth and this particular episode. We don't know how old they were. Were they 18 or 19? Were they 80 or 90? We have no idea. There were, we know from Genesis chapter 5, many other sons and daughters, but we don't know the birth order. We don't know how many years transpired before Seth was born, who is the replacement for Abel. So there are many questions that are left unanswered. And that is the purpose of this chapter is not to answer all of our questions, but to illustrate the consequences of sin by way of a contrast between one son who is obedient and one son who is disobedient. Now, Cain and Abel are both born after the fall, so they are both born spiritually dead. They are totally depraved. The only thing they they have is positive volition, and we see that Cain demonstrates negative volition to God and to the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, and Abel is a picture of positive volition. He is positive to what God has revealed. Now, when we look at the end of chapter 3, 
remember after the fall, after Adam and Isha had sinned, then Adam, and after God outlines the curse, the consequences for sin, then in verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, that is just a cursory statement. It doesn't say a whole lot. We have to infer certain things from it. When If God is going to make uh, tunics or clothing of skin, then that means he has to kill the animals. There is a blood sacrifice. We also infer from... Uh, a number of other passages that there must have been some level of instruction there. We know that by the time you, we get to Genesis 6 and Noah taking the animals on the ark, that God instructs Noah to take seven of every clean animal and two of every unclean. Well, where did he find out which was clean and which was unclean? See, we're not informed of when God revealed that information to Noah. But Noah apparently knew what was a clean animal and what was an unclean animal by the time you get to Genesis 6. You have sacrifices here in Genesis chapter 4. Well, how did they know to bring a sacrifice? Where did they bring the sacrifice? What was the basis of the sacrifice? All of that information is left out of the text. We, we don't know. We can only infer certain things from other, other passages of Scripture. So the text here doesn't indicate anything about why Cain responds one way, why Abel is positive. It just shows the results of the unbelief of Cain versus the results of the belief of Abel. So as we look at this, one of the things we can develop from the text is sort of a um, picture of what what people go through in unbelief, how unbelief responds to the truth. Because the focus is more on Cain and his response than it is on Abel. Now, as we go through this chapter, we can also see that Cain and Abel Abel become archetypes of human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Cain is an archetype of the unbeliever. He is a picture of unrighteousness, whereas Abel is a picture of righteousness. We'll see that as we look at some New Testament passages which give commentary and insight into what took place in Genesis 4. If we're we're just left with Genesis 4, we would have many more questions, but there's three key passages in the New Testament that give us some idea of what must have been going on in the background of Genesis 4. Cain is a picture of arrogance, whereas Abel is a picture of genuine humility. Also, as we get into this text, there is a a bit of irony in the narrative. Eve, when she gives birth to Cain, thinks that he is the promised seed of the woman. She's thinking in terms of God's promise in Genesis 15 that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So she is thinking that Cain is the answer to God's promise of deliverance back in Genesis 3.15. It's very likely that Satan also thought of Cain as the answer to that. So there, that would mean that, that Cain was a special target of Satan, and that is played out in a sense. We can't be sure about this, but some of the terminology given down in verse 7, which talks about sin, lying, at the door, and the Hebrew word that is translated uh, "lying at the door" is the Hebrew word "rabats," which we'll look at when we get there. But it's a cognate to an Akkadian word that was used as a name for a demon. And there's a personification of sin in this passage is sin is crouching at the door to control you and so there's a hint there in the text that this may be the uh, some sort of demonic uh, attack and temptation on Cain which would make sense because if uh, Eve thought that thought that Cain was the promised seed then Satan certainly would and would seek to destroy that line and seek to destroy the promised seed. So there's a bit of an irony there 
that Eve thinks that Cain is the promised seed, and in fact he ends up not even being a believer at all. He is a picture of unrighteousness. Furthermore, we see in this chapter the development of the sin nature as it manifests itself in human history. It will produce a culture that is antagonistic or hostile to God, and a culture involves a number of different things, but we can think of culture in terms of art, literature. Uh, today we talk in terms of its political structure, science, and technology, and music. And as we go through Genesis, the second half of Genesis 4 next week, we will see that human viewpoint and the rebellion against God expressed by Cain works itself out in the subsequent generations in developing in all of these different areas. And so people tend to think that art and literature, politics, science and technology, music are all culturally neutral. But they're not. Anything that man does comes out of a framework of thought. So you you have a certain orientation to reality. How do you define reality? What is your view of ultimate reality? And that then works itself out in terms of, of your relationships, in terms of your art, which is a portrayal of of reality. Uh, music is also a portrayal of, of uh, reality and how you see order and structure in the universe. Is everything simply random or does it have order and meaning and purpose? Is there ultimate resolution or does it just go on in some sort of random cacophonous manner? Same thing with literature. What is expressed in literature? You know, more human viewpoint is taught today in the public schools through literature than through uh, more obvious uh, courses such as uh, uh, science or ethics because in literature you can you can teach these values in sort of a, a, a backdoor fashion an, an envelopment fashion much as I uh, talked about in the past that the best strategy uh, that has been developed by military historians shows that uh, that strategy that is the most successful throughout the ages has not been a direct frontal assault but an indirect assault. And the best indirect assault for human viewpoint is through the soft sciences, through literature, sociologies, psychology, history, English, these kinds of things. And so they that expresses the author's view of reality. You have politics, uh, science and technology. All of these things develop in this chapter and so culture is the backdrop here as human viewpoint begins to express itself in terms of the development of culture. And that is the essence of what comes to be called in the Bible worldliness or cosmic thinking. It is not what you do. It is how you think and how your thinking and how your perception of reality uh, works itself out in terms of its attitudes. And, of course, it involves ethics because as we see, Cain rejects God and God's uh, plan and procedures, what God has revealed. And as Cain rejects that, it works itself out in terms of his own ethics. What matters is what Cain wants, not what God says. So all areas of culture are impacted by that basic orientation to ultimate reality, which is God. So in cosmic thinking, then, fallen, rebellious, negative volition seeks to reinterpret the world around it. When man is negative and he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, he has to have an alternate viewpoint. So he constructs an alternate view of reality, an alternate view of the world. And this is something that we call world views. There are many different world views today that are all part of cosmic thinking. You can think of... Uh, uh, communism is one worldview. You can think of existentialism as another worldview. You can think of uh, postmodernism as another worldview. Socialism as another worldview. There are, are also worldviews that are religious. Islam produces one worldview. Hinduism produces another worldview. And within each of these worldviews, there is an attempt to, to explain and structure all of reality. 
and this is the orientation of any kind of, of a human viewpoint, a negative volition, and in negative volition, man seeks to redefine the world around him, to reconstruct his own ethics or value system, to reconstruct his own norms and standards. Man redefines God and the terms for coming into the presence of God. He denies the reality of sin, the consequences of sin, the punishment, and the responsibility for sin. All of this we see in Genesis chapter 4. Now let's look at a couple of things in terms of the structure, just the overall structure of this section. Tonight we'll just get through the first 16 verses. The first 16 verses. And the, this section begins in verse 1 with Eve making a statement, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Actually, that is a, that is a very difficult statement to make, uh, for, I mean, to, to, to interpret, to translate. In the Hebrew, you have the initial verb, I have acquired, which is the verb kana. And it's in the Cal perfect, first person singular, and that's spelled Q-A-N-A-H. Uh, and it has a first person uh, suffix, in, uh, it's a first person singular, so it means I have acquired or gotten and then then the text just simply says, I have gotten a man, a man, and the Hebrew there is ish, indicating a male, ish, and then you have the difficult phrase. You have this word here, et, which is et, and then it is connected to the name Yahweh. This is the name, personal name for God. So, at Yahweh. Now, the difficult thing here is trying to translate this word, at. In Hebrew, you don't have cases per se, case endings like you do in Greek that would identify a direct object because it has an accusative ending. What you have in Hebrew is a direct object marker. And that is this preposition, et. Now, you also have a preposition, et. And that preposition, et, means with. So you have a translation problem here. Is Eve making a statement, I have acquired or I have gotten a man with the Lord. And some translations will say, that this should be with the, and they'll put this in, in italics, with the help of the Lord. And so that's a, an interpretation of the translation. I have, and the interpretation of that would mean that Eve recognizes that giving birth to Cain was something that ultimately uh, was a blessing from God. On the other hand, there are a number of Hebrew scholars among, uh, among which is, is uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and I generally tend to defer to Arnold because his knowledge of Hebrew is far beyond uh, almost anyone I know, having grown up with the language and rabbinical training. And Arnold's, Arnold argues that this is a direct object marker, and what Eve is saying here is that I have gotten a man, colon, the Lord. Now, what would she mean by that? It would be her understanding and interpretation of the Genesis 3.15 promise, that this seed would be not not just human, but would also be divine. And so this, of course, is later developed. We know that the Savior is the God-man, and so that is what she thinks she has with this firstborn son, and she thinks she's got the Messiah, and that would make sense. She she thinks that she's acquired a man, the Lord, and this is the promised seed, and yet he fails on all accounts. And when we get down to verse 16, which is the, the next section, the way my Bible has it marked out, uh, has the paragraph division at 16, but 16 really belongs to the first section. And 
I mean, the first section, it's the concluding part of it, and says that Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh. So it begins with the idea that that um, I have acquired a man, the Lord, and concludes with the idea that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. So there is the expression of that antagonistic element of human viewpoint from Cain. So there is an indication here in the first verse of the positive orientation of the parents to the Lord, their positive volition, and on the other hand, the antagonism and hostility of Cain to the Lord by verse 16. Now the story itself develops on the basis of two major dialogues, same thing we kind of thing we saw in terms of narration in uh, chapter 3. You have dialogue between the serpent and the woman, and then there's brief narration, and then there was dialogue between Yahweh and the, the serpent, the man, and the woman in verses 14 through 19. This section also turns on dialogue. Verses 3 through 7 is the first dialogue, the first real uh, section here uh, where Cain brings the offering and God dialogues with him in verses 6 and 7. And then in 9 through 16, you have another dialogue where uh, God is challenging Cain and there's a dialogue with between God and Cain in 9 through 15. So there's two dialogue sections that are the the axes on which the action in the narrative develops. Now, the focus is clearly on the conflict between Cain and Abel. I want you to watch watch the development here. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived aboard Cain. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you? And you see this, it goes back and forth, follow the bouncing ball. You know, at first it says, it's Cain, it's Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain, Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain. And the author structures it this way in order to focus our attention on the fact that this is the conflict between Cain and Abel and his sin against his brother. Furthermore, the word, the noun brother, occurs seven times in the narrative. The name Abel also occurs seven times, emphasizing the relationship between Cain and Abel, and then the name Cain occurs 14 times in 17 verses. Notice how there's always that that 7, 7, and 14, indicating that this is a complete narrative and very obvious that one person authored it, not like the... Uh, documentary hypothesis of the liberals want to contend that these are simply uh, different pericopes that have been picked up over time and then edited two or three times and brought together from, from different authors. It shows the unity of the text. There are also a number of factors in uh, this section that connect it back to the previous section. For example, the verb yada, which means to know, is used in four one and four nine and reminds the reader that man now knows the difference between good and evil, uh, which is picked up from two seventeen, three five, and three seven. Furthermore, we see that Cain had to hide himself after his condemnation. In verse fourteen we learn that he has to hide himself so no one seeks vengeance on him, just as Adam and Isha had to hide themselves from God in Genesis chapter 3. Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground, which is a reminder of the fruit that the woman ate. God interrogates Cain in verses 6 and 10, just as he interrogated Adam and Eshah back in chapter 3. God used the same words to Cain he used with the woman. He told the woman that her desire would be for the man to shuka, a desire to control, and in three or in four 
Uh, seven, sin seeks to desire or has a desire to control the, the uh, to control Cain, and that's the same word. It's only used one other time outside of these two chapters in the Old Testament. In both chapters, God imposes a penalty for sin, so that you can go on and on demonstrating the parallels between the two chapters, showing that there must be a unity of authorship. Now, as the chapter begins, we see that God is going to continue to bless the race, even though they are now in a state of sin, they're fallen, God is still going to bless them with offspring. Remember, their task has not changed. It has been made difficult, but they are still to rule over the uh, birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the earth, and they are to uh, rule over the planet. Now, they are still in the image of God, even though that image has been marred. So God blesses them with expansion, and their, the birth of the two sons is viewed as divine blessing in Genesis 4, uh, 1 and 2. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve. Actually, the verb here is the Hebrew uh, cal perfect yada, and that means to know. This is our first use of the Hebrew, to know. That's Y-A-D-A. And this has the word yada, yada, y-a-d-a, has numerous connotations. It means to know, it means to learn, it means to gain knowledge. It is used as a euphemism for sexual relations, and it emphasizes that there should be a level of knowledge between husband and wife. It indicates that sex is not something that is merely a physical act, but is an extension of an intimate, knowledgeable relationship between a husband and a wife. It is not something that is merely physical, but that there is a intellectual and emotional dimension to sex. So uh, Adam has sexual relations with his wife Eve. She conceives and gives birth to Cain and says, I have acquired a man, Yahweh. And I've already gone through the rationale behind that. She says, I have acquired from the Hebrew word kana, meaning to get, acquire, purchase, or create. And she says, she's thinking at this point that this is the promised Messiah. Now, the naming of a child in such a manner is typical in Genesis. Usually a child is named in relationship to some specific event or some character quality. And you could look at passages such as Genesis 5.29, 17.5, 41.51, and other passages where the naming of a child, for example, uh, Sarah names Isaac Yitzhak for laughter. Now, the interesting thing about these names is don't think that Cain means to acquire or to gain something. uh, Cain... Cain doesn't mean that. The word acquire is kana. Notice that's not Cain, but it sounds like it's a wordplay. The Hebrews loved these kinds of puns in wordplays, and they would name someone or give them a certain name because that name reminded them of another word or another concept. So Cain does itself doesn't mean to acquire, purchase, or create. It's simply a, a wordplay. Now, some time goes by, I think. I can't be sure. I can't be dogmatic. We know at least nine months went by, probably a year. I think other children were born between the two. I can't be sure of that, except there is a, there is a, an indication in the naming of the second son mentioned here. We don't know that this is even the Next son, that's not necessary from the text. We just know that she has a son, Cain. Cain was probably their firstborn, and it is some time before she has a second son named Abel. Were there other sons in between? No one knows. Did a lot of time go by? No one knows. It's interesting. We want time in here for to answer other questions, and the text is, is uh, silent on this. But when, Abel, when when this other son is born, she names him Abel. We translated Abel. We've lost the H. Actually, it looks like this in the Hebrew. H-E-B-E-L. And it means breath, 
vanity, emptiness. Not a real positive connotation here. You know, there's a hopefulness and optimism with Cain. Maybe Cain's grown up a little bit. Maybe he's demonstrated some of his self-centered, absorbed, arrogant uh, traits already, and she's not too keen on having another son that is as rebellious as, uh, as Cain. Perhaps she has just lived long enough to realize the problems of living in a fallen world and that the earth is now subject to vanity, as it's stated in Romans 8. 20, so she names this son uh, Abel, which means uh, vanity, emptiness, breath, or vapor. Now then we're told in verse 2, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now there's an interesting thing taking place here. You have a family of, uh, you know, on the surface it looks like there's just four, but there's a division of labor already. Remember I said there's a lot going on in the text here that you can take and apply to economics. There's a division of labor here so that Abel's responsibility has to do with the flocks. He's taking care of the sheep and the goats and the cattle. Cain is a tiller of the ground. Now remember, man is not authorized to eat meat until after the Genesis flood. So why are they keeping flocks and herds and sheep? For the leather, for clothing, for the wool, and also for sacrifices. So Abel has a job that is related to sacrifice, and of course we can connect that back to the instruction that Adam and his wife received from God when he made the tunics of skin for them. So Abel has a job that is related to sacrifice and related to the redemption of the from the curse, but Cain... In contrast, is a tiller of the ground, and that is a reminder that of God's curse on the ground. That in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Back in three seventeen, so there's a hint here, just a hint of an ominous overtone, a hint of a reminder of the curse on the one hand and the redemption from the curse on the other hand. Now. This second half of verse 2 indicates that some time has elapsed. Some Enough time has gone by for them to have uh, different occupations. And Abel raises the, takes care of the flocks, which provides for their clothing, which provides for sacrifices. And Cain is involved in agriculture and production of food for the family. Now, we know from Genesis 5 that Adam had other sons and daughters, so we don't know how many there were in this family because of implications of Cain building a city at the end of chapter 4 and other things. Uh, I would suggest that there were a number of children, that there were offspring were multiplying, that, that perhaps some time had gone by, but we can't be sure. Uh, maybe, just to be conservative, maybe 20, 25, 30 years of age at this particular time. Uh, but it could be older, it could be younger. The implications are that the boys are at least old enough to have chosen occupations. Uh, second thing that we could note is that since they are older, at least, at the very least, late adolescence, 18, 19, 20 years of age, it must be assumed that they, there has been a history of sacrificing. It must be assumed that if that if God gave instructions to Adam and Ishah back in one, uh, 321 for sacrifices, that this is something the boys have observed all their life. They have watched Adam and Eve, Chava, present those sacrifices on a regular basis to God. We don't know how regular they were. That's, that information's not given us. But certainly there was a protocol to bringing a sacrifice. Now that leaves us with certain unanswered questions, such as where did they learn about bringing a sacrifice? Obviously, the only thing we can surmise is from Genesis 3.21, and then this information was passed on by their, by their father. This clearly would not be their first sacrifice. They had been observing their parents, and they understood what was expected. Third thing we can, we can note from this is that both boys 
would have been taught the necessity of a blood sacrifice for first coming into the presence of God. They would have been taught that it was necessary for them to bring a blood sacrifice before they could come into the presence of God on the basis of atonement. We know this, furthermore, because the raising of animals, this is the fourth observation, since they were raising animals and not for food, it must have been for sacrifices. So they had a clear understanding of a sacrificial system. And then the fifth implication from this is that we see that Cain and Abel, as did the other children of Adam and Eve, manifested different volitional choices in life. One wanted to be a a keeper of the flocks, the other wanted to be a tiller of the ground. So there are differences manifested because of the different choices that they make. Now, the first section, we just deal simply with God blessing the race with expansion. But then things become a little more uh, negative in the second section, which deals with verses 3 through Three through, uh, let me see, three through five. And in three through five, we see the contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. There are two offerings made. Verse three. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now the word here for offering for both offerings, is the same. It's the Hebrew word men, mencha, M-I-N-C-H-A-H, mencha. And this has as its root meaning the idea of a gift, and it is used of the grain offering in the Levitical offering. So it is not does not indicate in and of itself that there is something inherently wrong with this offering. What we must understand here is an implication from other passages in the Scripture. Now look at the contrast. Cain brought an offering from the Lord of the fruit of the ground. He All the text says is he brought from the fruit. He doesn't bring the best. Then in verse 4, we look at Abel. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock. Of the firstlings of his flock. Actually, this is a hendiadus in the Hebrew, and it should be translated, he brought the fattest of the firstlings of his flock. He brought the very best. So there's a contrast. Cain just brought a gift from the fruit. Might have been spoiled fruit. Might not have been the best fruit. And Abel, on the other hand, brought the very best of the flock and of their fat portions. Abel uh, clearly is obedient to God's standard, recognizing that he gives the very best to God. Uh, the fat, which was a principle that's incorporated into the Mosaic Law in passages such as uh, Exodus 13.2, 13.12, Leviticus 3.16, and Leviticus 22:17 to 25 there's an emphasis on the fact that the fat portion belongs to God and so Abel's sacrifice fits subsequent patterns to sacrifices but Cain's sacrifice seems to be a secondary sacrifice that he brings in contrast to the blood sacrifice of of Abel in the New Testament, we have a couple of verses that give us some a little more insight into Cain's offering. Though Cain's offering might have been legitimate as an offering, we have an indication from the New Testament that it wasn't simply his attitude. See, some scholars will say, well, the difference really was Cain brought didn't bring the best, and it, he had a bad attitude. He wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, subordinate to God, and uh, and so God did not accept his sacrifice. But I would maintain that it's not just his attitude, but his attitude produced the wrong kind of sacrifice. He wants to define 
what it takes to come into the presence of God. This is typical of human viewpoint. Human viewpoint wants to solve the problem on its own and wants to dictate to God what is acceptable, that it's good works, it's ritual. Uh, we're going to come up with our own approach to God as opposed to God saying there's one and only one way to him. So Abel is trusting in the revelation of God. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, that is on the basis of the doctrine that he believed that had been revealed uh, to him, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And here the emphasis is clearly on the quality of the sacrifice, not on the attitude of the one coming. It's on, he, which would indicate that Cain was disobedient in what he brought as a sacrifice. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. There we see that Abel has a positional righteousness. He is justified before God. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. That is, we still have a testimony of uh related to Abel's righteousness. Then in Hebrews 12:24 there's another allusion to Abel, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So Jesus sacrifice is seen as the picture of the sacrifice of Abel. Abel's sacrifice portrayed that which would be accomplished on the cross. Therefore, it brings in the idea that this had something to do with redemption and with atonement. And so Abel was bringing an atoning sacrifice. Cain did not bring an atoning sacrifice. So in human viewpoint, what we see is that the the person on negative volition, person in human viewpoint, seeks to approach God on his own terms and define the basis for that relationship with God on his own terms, whereas divine viewpoint seeks to approach God on his terms. Divine viewpoint seeks to approach God on his terms and how God has described uh, how that should take place. The result of this is when man wants to get to God on his terms and God rejects it, man becomes angry. He becomes hostile, jealous, bitter over that rejection. He turns angry toward God. And this is what you see typically with unbelievers is there's a level of bitterness and anger uh, directed towards God. Genesis 4.4 we read, And the Lord had regard for Abel, and for his offering, and the word therefore regard is the Hebrew word sa'ah, sa'ah, and it's an interesting word here, s-a-a-h, sa'ah, and it means to look on something. It's most Basic meaning is simply to glance or to look at something, and it comes to mean to look at something with favor, although in some cases it does mean to look on something with disfavor. depends on the context. And then the word comes to mean to look on something with respect, to pay attention to something, or to validate. So we could translate this, and the Lord validated Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no Validation. He did not validate. So what happened? The result is that Cain became, became very angry and his countenance fell. He became depressed. See, there's a connection between anger and depression. Anger is the result of not getting your own way. Depression is the result of realizing that you're not going to get your own way. And after you've been angry for a while, it deteriorates into depression. So Cain goes through all this very quickly, and he is angry at God, and his countenance fell. And at this point, God confronts him with his sin, just as God had confronted uh, Adam and Eve. So God comes to, to Cain and says, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? And then in the following verses, we see another characteristic of human viewpoint antagonism to God. It rejects 
the divine warnings about sin. Human viewpoint says to God, it won't really happen. It's not that serious. It's not that bad. That's the same thing that we saw in the original curse, in the original fall, is that Eve did not think that the consequences of eating the fruit would be that serious. And the same thing happens here. God warns Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? And then God says to him, if you do well, and this is the Hebrew verb yatav, yatav, which means, which is related to the noun tov for good. You do well, yatav. Y-A-T-A-V, yatav. And it has here a moral connotation. Remember, the knowledge of good and evil, tov versus ra. Here we have yatav, that's the action. You can do well now. Now that you know the difference between good and evil, you can do well that which is pleasing to God, as in contrast to sin. If you do not do well, sin, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, if you're obedient to God, that will take care of problems of depression and anger because you're going to be subordinate to God and his plan and purposes. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and here is the picture of a, a, the personification of sin. It is seeking to destroy like an animal. And the word here for uh, uh, crouching at, at the door, sin is crouching, is the word rabats. And this is a word, as I mentioned earlier, that has a cognate Akkadian word, for demon, sin is like a demon at the door, and its desire, that is teshuka, the same word we have for the woman's desire for the man in Genesis 3, 15, and its desire, that is, it, it has a desire to control, to dominate you, but you must master it. And the principle here is that even though we are a fallen creature, even though we are under sin, the individual has the ability to master sin, to choose not to sin on the basis of God's provision. So Cain is told that even though there is this tremendous temptation right now, this anger, resentment toward God, reaction towards God, he does not have to yield to that temptation, and he can master it. Then in verse 8, verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother, And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, we don't know how he killed him. Jewish legend says that he picked up a stone and and, uh, hit him over the head with it. I've seen other renditions that talk about uh, that that Cain used the sacrificial knife on Abel. We're not told. We're told he could have strangled him. Uh, There are a number of different ways that he could have killed him. All we know is that he murdered his brother. So the, the, the point of this is that in human viewpoint arrogance, Cain expresses antagonism towards what God has, re, has warned him about. He treats God's warning lightly. He doesn't take him, take him seriously. And as a result, he disobeys God and he murders his brother. As a result, God then confronts him with his sin. And the Lord said to Cain in verse 9, where is Abel your brother? Notice he wants to, he, he knows where Abel is. He wants to point out to, to Cain and for Cain to face up to his responsibility. But just like his parents, he refuses that. See, this is the next point that human viewpoint rejects responsibility for sin. Remember when we were discussing the problem of evil, I pointed out two ways that evil impacts Human viewpoint thought. The first is that throughout human viewpoint thought, the idea is that evil is normal and eternal. The second is seen here, and that is the rejection of personal responsibility for sin. So the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And see, the point of this story is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. To the Jew, Leviticus 19.18, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And then that's intensified in the New Testament that the believer is 
to love one another as Christ loved us. So yes, the answer is yes, there is a mutual responsibility here to take care of one another. Why? Because we're in the image of God. This is why murder is wrong. We're all created in the image of God, despite the fact that we live in a fallen world. There are consequences for sin. In Jude 1.11, we're told, or in Jude 11, we're told, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the area of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The point of this verse is that there are consequences to sin. There are consequences to human viewpoint rebellion, and the yet human viewpoint seeks to uh, reject the idea of personal responsibility for sin and personal accountability. And so God confronts uh, Cain with his accountability in verses 10 through 14. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying, what, to me. You see, God pays attention to the victim, to the victim, not the rights of the criminal, but the rights of the victim. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Verse 11, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So there are consequences for Cain in relationship to his chosen vocation. Because remember, he was the tiller of the ground. Now he's cursed from the ground. He's no longer going to be able to uh, have production from the ground because of his murder of his brother. Verse 12, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And here's where we see the beginning of the nomad. The nomad, the, the what you see in, in uh, evolution is a picture of man starting off. and you have, Finally, a human being evolves, and then he collects with other human beings, and they're nomadic, and they live by hunting and gathering. And then eventually, as time went by and thousands of years go by, eventually they decide to settle in, in specific locations and develop cities. And so in evolution, there's this idea of progress. But the picture in Scripture is they start off already having agricultural skills. They start off already having an advanced mentality. And what you see in the in the hunter and gatherer aborigine nomadic cultures is a devolution because of sin, not evolution. And so this is just the complete opposite of what uh, human viewpoint concepts of origins dictate. Uh, he is a vagrant and a wanderer because of sin. And this is how you get the various different types of, uh, of cavemen is because they were uh, different elements, different uh, branches of the human race that were involved in rebellion against God and left the mainstream. They, are, they do not represent the mainstream. So we notice once again that man's sin has consequences on nature. As a result of this, we see that human viewpoint challenges the judgment of God. Human viewpoint challenges the judgment of God and protests God's judgment as being too harsh. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. I'm going to be uh, wide open to vengeance from anyone else in the family who wants to uh, execute justice. And so God says that there is still common grace extended to Cain, and this is outlined in verse 15. There, the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance, that is justice. This word for vengeance that's used in the Old Testament, it's not a word for revenge. God isn't exercising revenge. He is exercising judgment or justice. And that's how it should be translated. Divine justice will be taken on him sevenfold. And the idea of sevenfold indicates its completeness. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, probably something like a tattoo or some visible mark, so that no one finding him would slay him. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So he begins to go into the land where there, there, there's no one else, and he is just a wanderer 
and a vagrant living off the land to the best that he can. So what we've seen as we've gone through this chapter is an, an indication of the response of human viewpoint uh, versus divine viewpoint. First of all, we saw that human viewpoint seeks to approach God on his own terms. He wants to define the sacrifice, define the ritual. He wants to define what the norms and standards are. And then as he does that and God rejects that, then in, in his arrogance he becomes hostile, angry, jealous, and bitter over that rejection. Furthermore, in human viewpoint, the arrogance uh, rejects the warnings about sin, treats the sin lightly. It's not that serious. It's not that devastating. And then human viewpoint also goes moves to rejecting responsibility for sin and accountability for sin. And then when God lowers the boom, it whines and cries out against the against God, who's just not fair and who is in, in just. So in uh, the story of Cain and Abel, we see a picture of what happens in the human race, the contrast between uh, the righteous seed of the woman and the unrighteous. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll look at what happens to Cain and the different uh, de- and the development of human viewpoint culture in the last half of uh, chapter four, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the things that we see here and evidence of of your work and your grace even in uh, the life of someone who is a a terrible sinner like Cain, that you continue to uh, protect his life and you allowed him time on the earth to continue to uh, uh, turn eventually if possible to you. Father, we thank you that your grace is extended to every human being to give everyone an option for salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the dynamics of uh, human viewpoint, the dynamics of evil, the dynamics of rejection of grace, the dynamics of rejection of your revelation as we study this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.